This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So, many of you know me from YouTube. Many of you have been my stalkers over the last week, <laughs> following me everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I've taught many, many different uh, teachings. And uh, from the introduction there, uh, I am a monk who understands that being a hypocrite is no way of actually leading anywhere, anyone, anywhere. So in life, you know, what you believe in, you have to stand up for. What you teach, you have to do. What you believe in, you have to follow and make happen. And it's not that difficult to do. It is one of the teachings of my master Ajahn Chah in Thailand, passed away a long time ago. And that was the teaching which, uh, it is in one of my books, but not many people knew about this teaching because it happened to an Australian man who told me about this. That before Ajahn Chah had a stroke and was unable to teach, uh, he became quite well known in many areas of the world. And this Australian man, he wanted to see the great master to ask some questions. As people often do want to ask deep questions over those with a reputation for wisdom and compassion. So he travelled all the way from Sydney to Bangkok, from Bangkok up to the northeast of Thailand, Ubon, and from Ubon to find a taxi to take him to this remote uh, monastery uh, in Thailand. By the time he got to this monastery, it was a huge monastery, he had to ask someone who could understand English, now where is this great master? And he was under his hut where he usually received guests. And so this Australian man walked to that area and found the great master was surrounded by about 200 or 300 people, all of them asking their questions. And he waited and waited and waited, two hours, three hours, and he was not any closer to talking to the Master Ajahn Chah. So, disappointed, he gave up. He got up and walked away, realizing there was no chance he could get close enough to ask the questions he'd come all that way for. But on the way out, he saw the monks were doing some sweeping of the grounds. He realized his taxi would not come for a while, so he decided at the very least he could make some good karma and do some cleaning. So he picked up the broom and started sweeping. Uh, maybe not even five minutes had passed by and he felt behind him someone put their hand on his shoulder. Now, of course he looked around and that hand belonged to Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was a great monk. Now he could read minds. That's why it was a bit scary to be with him. <laughs> but as I said already, don't be afraid that the monks or nuns can read your minds. Because in meditation, when you do develop that ability, you only read one or two minds, and after two minds, that's enough. You will never want to read such a mind again. <laughs> Your minds aren't worth reading. <laughs> so, <laughs> being honest. But Ajahn Chah had read this guy's mind, at least he'd known that this man had come such a long distance 
and only for the one reason of seeing this great master. Not for touring around, not for traveling, not for buying uh, mementos to give to his family when he got back home. He came from Sydney direct here, he was going to go back to Sydney again. So Ajahn Chah, through an interpreter, gave him a quick teaching. It was only just one sentence, and you know most of the greatest teachings I have got were just these one-liners. They're the ones which you take back with you and they really mean so much. I'll give you one of my one-liners before I give you Ajahn Chah's. Because this time there was a Singaporean man, he was asking me very quickly, because he had to go to work, <laughs> what is the essence of Buddhism? And I told him, he said, the essence of Buddhism is suffering, and suffering is asking from this world something it can't give you. And it's a very beautiful teaching. When you ask from this world something it cannot give you, that's called suffering. And we ask so much from this world, so much impossible things, such as your husband always being home on time, <laughs> such as your wife always being kind, such as your children always being smart and going to good universities, <laughs> such as your boss being reasonable. This is asking from this world something it can never give you. Like Ajahn Brahm, not telling bad jokes. <laughs> so, bad joke for today. Uh, I told so many bad jokes in the last few days. How many heard my latest bad joke, because this hasn't been on YouTube yet, the foot, 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 and foot, foot, foot joke? Only one of you, other than none of you have heard everything, you've been following everyone. Okay, a few of you have heard, but most of you haven't. So here's tonight's bad joke. For those of you who want to take a toilet break, I would advise to go now. <laughs> so this was happened in an indigenous community somewhere up in the mountains. And an indigenous member in this reservation, a woman, had three sons. And she named her first son Foot. Her second son she named Foot Foot. And the third son you've guessed it, was named Foot, Foot, Foot. And so Foot, 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 and Foot, Foot, Foot. <laughs> they grew up together in the mountains, they played together, they learned together, they went hunting together, they got into trouble together. They were so close and had a wonderful upbringing. But when Foot turned 21, he said to his mother, Mum, I've lived all this life in the mountains and the forest. I've never been to the city. I want to go to San Francisco to see what a city is like. The mum said, no, it's too dangerous. You don't belong there. You won't know what to do. And Foot said, but I plan to take my younger brother Foot Foot with me. Because Foot Foot and Foot, we should be okay in the city. And after much argument, the mother relented and said, okay, you can go. So Foot and Foot Foot got in the bus and after a few hours, Foot and Foot Foot got off the bus, they arrived in San Francisco and they were walking down the road enjoying <coughs> you know, the amazing, incredible sights of San Francisco which don't exist in the forest and Foot Foot found a discarded hamburger on the ground and Foot Foot picked it up thinking it's just like in the forest you can pick up anything and eat it but Foot told him don't eat that because it might be dirty you don't know how long it's been there, it might have gone off and Foot Foot said, but it looks nice and it smells nice. And so Foot Foot said to his brother Foot, 
why don't you try it first of all, you're the elder brother. So he gave the hamburger to Foot, and Foot uh, took the hamburger, took one bite, and his younger brother saw, and you know, Foot Foot saw his elder brother Foot you know, hold his tummy, and he got very sick almost immediately. So Foot Foot called the ambulance, and they took Foot into the ambulance, and Foot Foot went with him, and they went to the hospital. And at the hospital they tried their very best to cure the ailment, but poor old Foot died. And so Foot Foot had to arrange the, to take the body of Foot back up to the indigenous community where they could do the ceremonies you know, required. And of course, the younger two brothers, Foot Foot and Foot Foot Foot, were very, very sad. And they cried for a long time. But once all the grief was over, Foot Foot went to his mum again and said, Mum, you know, I only had five minutes in San Francisco. I hardly saw anything, mostly the inside of a hospital. Can I go back again? And mother said, of course you can't go back. And he said, look, I planned it already. I will go with foot, 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 and I'll make sure that none of us picks up any hamburgers. So foot, 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 and foot, foot could go to San Francisco without any problems. And his mother said, no, absolutely not. And foot, foot was so upset. He said, why, mother, why can't I go? And here is a punchline. Because, said the mother, of course you can't go. I've got one foot in the grave already. <laughs> Thank you. Now I've got that over. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? Did you not see that coming? Now, 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 you're all supposed to be meditators, part of insight, doing compassionate work. But how many of you are not going to be able to resist telling your friends tomorrow that bad joke? <laughs> Everyone complains, but they always repeat it to somebody else. <laughs> Back to this guy. You know, what Ajahn Chah told him, this one word of wisdom which was so powerful was, if you're going to sweep, give it everything you've got. And then he took his hand off the shoulder and went. Now that may seem just a little bit of advice, which is maybe you think ordinary. But when it comes from a great master, it means something far deeper. And on the way home, this uh, Australian man, he contemplated it and he realized what it meant. It meant that when you're working, you give work 100%. You don't think of the family you're going to go to later on. You don't think of the, the cricket match which is on the TV tonight. You don't think of anything, you focus fully on the work. When you're with your family, you're 100% with your family. You're not thinking about the work or the meal. When you're eating, you give eating everything it's got. When you go to bed at night, you don't think about the work you have to do tomorrow or the arguments you had today. You give rest everything you've got. And even when you're meditating, you give meditation everything you've got. You don't think of what's coming afterwards. As for me, I'm giving this talk everything I've got. I'm not thinking of the bed which is waiting for me later, or the flight back to Australia tomorrow, and the talk I will have to give a couple of hours after I land from this long flight. You don't think of anything like that. You give this moment everything you've got. And this Australian came to tell me this over in Perth and he said that was a secret of becoming a millionaire in his business, having a beautiful family, really good meditation, 
that simple teaching had made all the difference in his life. Because what most people do is they save something for later. So when you are working, you don't work really hard because you've got to save something for later on when you go and do uh, some volunteer work you know, for the Insight Meditation Society. When you're in the Insight Meditation Society, you don't give everything you've got. You know, you save a bit more for later on. When you're eating, you're thinking of work. When you're working, you're thinking of eating. You're never really totally here. And when you're talking to somebody, you're trying to get rid of them. You're not trying to give everything you've got because you're trying to save something for later on. That is not the way to success in life. The way to success is always, in this moment, give it everything you've got. That actually creates energy. You become a highly energetic person, full of effort, full of power, because every moment, whatever you do, you give it 100%. Now a lot of times, people aren't, can't even sleep at night. The reason is because they don't give sleep everything they've got. You know, they're just thinking of work, or they're worrying about things. So I ask people, if you want to have a good sleep at night, how many of you sleep with your shoes on, or your slippers on, in bed? Is that filthy happy? No one does that. So I advise people, when you go to bed tonight, when you take off your left slipper or shoe, look at the left shoe or slipper as your past. You don't take the past into bed with you. You take it off before you get into bed and you tuck it under the mattress or under the bedstead. And then when you take off your right foot, identify the right foot with your future. Of all the things you're going to have to do tomorrow morning, take that off and put it under the bed. And if you associate your left slipper with the past, the right slipper with the future, you really associate them, put it under the bed, there's a good chance that the real past and the real future will also be left under the bed. So that when you are sleeping, you give sleep everything you've got. Not worrying what happened before. Not concerned about what's coming afterwards. So you can sleep really well. And you give meditation everything you've got. Whatever you're doing, give it everything you've got. And that was the secret of success for Ajahn Chah. And the reason I tell this story is because later on, uh, we actually we've already uh, flagged this already, later on we're hoping you're going to give some donations to Dharma Darini. So when you start giving a donation, please remember the secret of success is give it everything you've got. <laughs> You know that doesn't work, I've tried that many times. <laughs> it's worth a go though. But every... <laughs> so, not with donations, because that's just greed. But just at least, whatever you're doing, you're going out with someone, give that person your total attention. You're with your husband and wife, doesn't matter how... Not husband or wife, not husband and wife. I know this is California, but I still don't think you have the two things. <laughs> but at least... You give total attention to whatever you're doing. Giving that effort is a powerful way of having success in life. And of course, all of you doing meditation here, it's supposed to be an Insight Meditation Society, give that everything you've got. 100% attention. 100% effort. Fully committing to whatever you are doing. And of course, that's a secret for success. Whatever I've ever done in life, 
I've always fully committed to it, thrown myself into it 100% and see what happens. Where there was the ordination of women, I don't care what happens, you give yourself 100% into this, see what happens. And it is because of that that I'm here, it's true, because I say that uh, helping women enter the monastic order is like having daughters. When I have a daughter, when you have a daughter, you know, you have to look after them. You can't just give birth and think, right, that's it. I've done my bit. Now grow up by yourself. <laughs> you, know, you have to look after them. Make sure they're well-fed and well-trained and well-housed. So that's what I'm doing here. It's making sure my kids, because I'm much older than these ones. You know how old I am? It was last February, a year ago, when I was in Bhutan, I'm honest, I can't lie, I celebrated my 750th birthday. <laughs> Honestly. Now, monks, monks, we can't lie. It's a, really against our precepts. I celebrated my 750th birthday in February 2014. Amazing, isn't it? Do I look 750? <laughs> as, as I.T. said earlier, Ajahn Brahm, you don't look a year over 600. <laughs> but it's not about years. It's about months. I celebrated 750 months since I was born. It's much more awesome giving your age in months <laughs> rather than years. Anyone can say years. And of course, if you say you're 62 and a half last February, which was, you know, in years, that's ordinary. So, say 750, say it in months, and it's much more awesome. <laughs> it's just the same whenever we have any collections, any donations. Like the other day, last night, we, uh, in, the, in your temple, you know how much money we raised for Dhamma Darini last night? It was... Uh, because um, Lau had to count it in front of me to make sure he was honest. And it was uh, 100 and over 120,000. Wow. <laughs> Sense. <laughs> Sense. <laughs> Only about 1,200. Still being good. But when I say sense, 120,000 say, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> so be careful when you listen to these things because a lot of times in life when we don't listen carefully, we don't have mindfulness and attention, we get it all wrong. So this is actually an interesting piece of Dhamma. Sometimes we jump to conclusions, we get angry at people, we get upset at people, and sometimes these are people we love. It's just because we haven't been listening closely. Like this story. This is in the Dung book, but this actually happened. Many years ago, or oh, maybe about 20 years ago, there were lots of scandals happening in Thailand, in the tradition from which I came from. Monks having mistresses, monks taking drugs, monks getting drunk. And there were so many, there were front page news because naughty monks are very interesting. <laughs> monks who behave, no one wants to know about those. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, there's all these, all these accusations going around, and so for the sake of honesty, 
and to clear my conscience, I made my confession. I made my confession in front of my regulars on a Friday night in Onomara. I looked to the ground because confessions are very hard things to do. But it's really important you're honest. It's much better to clear your conscience so you know, at least you're being honest with everybody. So in front of my congregation, maybe three or four hundred, it was on online as well, I told people that some years previously I had spent some of the happiest hours of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife. Honestly, we kissed, we hugged, we loved each other. There was another man's wife. And people, they almost went through the door. They said, oh no, not Ajahn Brown. And then I said, that woman was my mother. <laughs> How many of you did I get? <laughs> I spent some loving, many hours before I was a monk in the loving arms of my father's wife, my mother. We hugged, we kissed, we had wonderful happy times. <laughs> How many of you jumped to the conclusion, oh my goodness, he did this as a monk? I never said when I was a monk, I said many years previously. And I said, another man's wife, you think, that's adultery, <laughs> kissing and hugging, <laughs> but it was my mum. So I say that story because sometimes when we listen to other people, what they say, sometimes we, we think we understand, and we get very upset and angry, and we realise we said the wrong thing, and that causes so much harm. Which is one of the reasons why, don't get angry, please give other people the benefit of the doubt. If they do something or say something, don't think they've been mean and nasty to you. Maybe say that, no, they must have had a bad day today. Something went wrong to them. Or, as this story, one of my other favourite stories, comes. I don't, haven't told this uh, since I was here. This is a story of the lovely husband who had the afternoon off work and his wife was cooking dinner and his wife said to him, darling, I've run out of eggs. Would you mind, would you mind going to the market and getting some eggs for me? And the husband said, sure, darling, but I've never been to the market before. Can you give me instructions? And so the, the wife uh, gave him the basket, gave him some money and drew him a little map of how to get to the market and where the egg store is. And he happily took the basket and the money and walked to the market to help his dear wife. And when he got into the marketplace, looking around for the egg store, this young man came up, maybe about 16 or 17 years of age, and went right in front of the husband and said, My God, you're so ugly. You've got a face like a camel. The back end of a camel, that is, not the front end. And I don't know what you've been using for soap or deodorant, but you smell like dog poo. And the husband, I don't even know you. Why are you saying these terrible things to me? In the market, in front of everybody. But that didn't stop this young man. This young man really got into it. Now I can't say 
to you what this young man said to the husband because I'm a monk. We have very, sens very sensitive uh, nuns over there. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard worse living in California. But he was scolded, berated, cursed, abused, and the poor husband hadn't done anything, didn't even know the guy, and it was in public. And the husband got so upset and embarrassed, he turned around and went home. And when he got home, he slammed the door. And his wife said, you're early, darling. Yes, and don't ever send me to that stupid market ever again. People are so uncivilized there. I don't know why they go there anyway. They're so bad, they don't know how to treat anybody. I was... He was so upset. And when someone's upset, just let them you know, say what they need to say. Soon they run out of puff, like I did very early, because I'm, I'm old. And, you know, I was over 750, I've got to be looked after myself. <laughs> so, when he paused, his wife inquired, what happened? And he told the story of this young man. And the wife said, oh, it's him. That poor boy, when he was five or six, had an accident. He fell on the ground and hit his head. Because of the concussion, he's brain damaged. That poor boy does that to all of us from time to time, sometimes to me, sometimes to others. He's, <coughs> he's brain damaged. Now he can't go to school. He will never find a job in this world. He will never find a nice wife to share his life with. No, he's crazy. So, you know, we let him stay in the market, some place he can go, we can give him some food during lunchtime. Now he's, we don't mind that, because he's a crazy boy. And as soon as the husband realised that he'd been abused, told off and scolded by someone who was not in their real mind, all his anger and embarrassment faded away. And when his wife saw that he was no longer upset, she told her husband, darling, I still need those eggs. <laughs> okay, I'll go. Don't mind that boy. Yeah, I won't mind that boy now. I know what the truth is. So I went into the market again, and this boy came up to him again. Hey, close your eyes, everybody. Here comes a guy with a face like the back of a camel. Hold your noses. Here comes dog shit. But this time it didn't matter. Because he realised that poor boy was crazy. And the poor boy scolded him and abused him all the way to the egg store, and the lady selling the eggs said, don't mind him, he hit his head. Yeah, I just found out, what a shame. Isn't it a tragedy what happens to some people? And all the time the boy was scolding this man. And so he could get the eggs and walk home without getting upset at all, because he realised the boy was crazy. And the moral of that story is, all you guys, if you come home from work late, and if your wife starts shouting at you for this or for that, no need to be upset or get upset back, because just give her the benefit of the doubt, since she must have hit her head today. <laughs> <laughs> or if your husband does that to do when you come back from shopping, he must have hit his head on the car as he got in. <laughs> Brain damage. <laughs> because in the Dharma, getting angry is called temporary insanity. 
something has happened to make you insane. No one in their right mind would get angry at anybody else. It's only when you're in your wrong mind or out of your mind you get angry. So if someone gets angry at you, remember that story. <laughs> the boss has hit his head this morning. <laughs> That's why he's so angry and upset. That means it takes away your response, which means they don't get angry back because you don't feed it with your response. But if you ever want to calm down anyone who's angry, maybe it's your family or your friends, a very wonderful way is if someone shouts <coughs> at you, they get right in front of you, tell you all the things you've done wrong, what a terrible person you are. When they're finished, don't defend yourself straight away. Use the 30 seconds of silence technique. They've just been shouting at you, telling you all the things you're doing wrong. Pause and look at them for 30 seconds. Give them a chance to reflect on what they've just said. Because a lot of the time, as soon as they stop, then you give back. They don't have time to be mindful of what they've just done. It's a very powerful technique, because if they get angry at you, and you pause for 30 seconds, hold it back. You only want to sort of defend yourself. You don't need to. Hold it back, be silent, look in their eyes, hold them. And then when they've got that 30 seconds, a lot of time they realise how stupid they have been. How uncivilised, how bad they have been. And they won't get angry at you again. Don't try and defend yourself. You don't need to, you've done nothing wrong. They need that time small time to be able to overcome rather to, rather to reflect on what they've just done. Very beautiful way of dealing with anger of others. Because all people who get angry at you, they're in a bad space. And as Holiness of Dalai Lama once said, don't worry about the harm they did to you. Yeah, they got angry at you, they shouted at you, they're a bad person. But even if you're in the office there, you only have to live with them six, seven hours a day, five days a week. They have to live with themselves 24 hours a day for the rest of their life, poor things. And that actually gives you compassion for people who get angry and upset at you. And it's actually wonderful if you do not respond with anger because the person getting angry realise that actually you understand them. You understand they're not getting angry at you, they're getting angry because they're hurting inside. Whenever we get angry at others, it is temporary insanity, it is coming from the pain inside our heart. Whenever you got angry at others, it's because you're so frustrated, you've, you're at the, the end of your tether. I've seen people getting angry at traffic lights. How many of you got angry at your computer? Stupid computer when it crashes. Look, the computer hasn't got it in for you. The computer does that because you press the wrong button. It's, it's not the computer's fault. Stop shouting at it or the traffic light, it's not their fault, it's just you. So sometimes it gets frustrating in life, and a lot of our anger, where does it come from anyway? We're asking from life something it can't give us, and out of frustration we get angry, thinking that getting angry can make things happen our way. It doesn't. I was going off to Indonesia from Australia once to give some talks, I was flying Garuda, the Indonesian airline. As soon as I checked in, uh, they said, I'm sorry sir, but the plane is delayed. How long for? 24 hours. Uh, 
Okay, 24 hours, I was going to give a talk that night. You can't do anything about it. When the plane's delayed, it's delayed. Other people, I saw them banging on the counter. You can't do this to me. Why do you do this to me? It's wrong to do this to me. I've got an appointment. You can't do this. And all they got out of that was a sore hand. It did not make the plane come any quicker. Now how stupid can people be? And anyway, there was a reason why the plane was delayed. This was the time of bird flu. Remember the bird flu epidemic in Southeast Asia? And Garuda's a bird. So the aircraft got bird flu. That's why it couldn't come that day. <laughs> that was my explanation. But why do we get angry about things which we cannot change? So ask yourself before you get angry, anger going to help anyway? Is it going to make things better? A lot of times it doesn't. So please, before you get angry, please reflect. Now, is this going to help anybody? Is it going to make things better? Am I going to get my own way when I get angry? You don't usually. And even if you are angry for a just cause, for example, you know, stopping bikunis, stopping women joining an order. Now, getting angry for these things, does it really help? It doesn't because people don't see your argument, they only see your anger which is one of the reasons why, whenever you do have a point to make, make it peacefully and calmly. Otherwise people just see your anger, they don't see the argument. So that's one of the reasons why in Buddhism we learn wonderful techniques not to get angry what other people do or say, that's their problem. We learn how to be peaceful and kind so that we can subdue anger. One of the other ways of subduing anger, when people start to get angry at me for all sorts of different reasons, and it's amazing, I'm a peaceful monk, I don't do any wrong in the world, but people still get angry at me. Maybe for telling bad jokes, or for not doing more, for being lazy, for being a bludger, you should get a proper job, Ajahn Brahm, instead of just sucking, up, sucking on, on the, the hard-earned earnings of other people. Why don't you do something in this world instead of living on charity? Because it's true, you know. I don't do a, a paid day's work in my life. All of my work is unpaid. But you no, know, it's because you give to other people in all sorts of other ways. That's why people look after you. But they get angry at you sometimes. Even, you know, I'm in a Christian church here, even Christians get angry for me for converting Christians to being Buddhists. I don't know how many of you were Christians before. But, you know, imagine the Christians who come here and they say, well, Ajahn Brahm, you're converting too many of ours, we're getting very angry at you. And they, and they, just before I left, one of the Christian people started getting angry at me, arguing with me, they said, there's nothing higher than God. And I said, actually, I agree with you. Nothing is much higher than God. <laughs> Emptiness, space, is the <laughs> They say that's not what we meant, but it was a good argument anyway. <laughs> so instead of letting people argue with you, there's other ways of dealing with things. Now on that, because we're in a, a church right now, I, how many of you were at the talk I gave in the Sri Lankan Temple in Sacramento, other than the nuns? Because you've been following me everywhere. <laughs> Only one or two. Okay, you surely was as well. There we had a bishop come to my talk. And you know, instead of having disharmony between religions, how can actually you use you know, the wisdom of non-anger to actually to create some mutual understanding? 
And so because we had a bishop and another priest at this temple, then I decided to tell us another story about, I love stories because stories convey information better than any other teachings. And it was a time when I was with a friend of mine who was an abbot of a Benedictine monastery. Now we were really close friends, to show how close friends we were, because you know, we would discuss abbot business. There's only one other abbot in Western Australia. <coughs> and it's amazing how many of the problems we had were similar. So we confer every now and again on how to treat and, and teach our disciples. So if you want any, any tips on how to, to run a monastery and get these younger uh, nuns in line, you know, you know who to come to. It's you know, secret abbot's rules. But, <laughs> but anyways, he became a close friend, so much so that when he died, I was invited to his funeral mass in the church. I was the only one who was not a Catholic. I was a Buddhist monk, and I was invited to go and say a few words at his Catholic uh, mass, because they all realized just how close friends we were. And anyway, the, this fellow, Abbot Placid, uh, we were, years earlier, we were at a um, conference on chaplaincy now at the university. And also in the audience was an Australian man who was very prominent in Australia. You know, if you, anyone was from Australia here, when I mention his name, you would know him. Because he was a person <coughs> who was asked by the Australian government to head a committee to introduce a Bill of Human Rights into the Australian Constitution. Very well known, a great scholar, and he was also a Jesuit priest. So when he asked me a question, I knew I'd had to really dig deep to find an answer which satisfied him. And his question was, what is the Buddhist concept of God? It's a nice place to answer this in this church. Now it's very easy to sort of go to um, suttas or tradition and say Buddhists don't believe in God, but that doesn't go far enough. That's what he could read in any book. I wanted to take this question far deeper. So what I said to him, I said, my friend here, Abbot Placid, I've known for a long time, we have very good discussions on religion, on spirituality, on meditation as well. And he's often told me that one of his core beliefs is that everyone is searching for God. That's what he keeps saying. Now I respect my friend. So I, look, I ask the question myself, what am I, Ajahn Brahm, searching for? What are all you searching for? What are the bhikkhunis searching for? What we're searching for, much more than a monastery, is respect. That's one of the reasons why I gave ordination, or helped with the ordination of women. Women want respect, so that they can become full bhikkhunis if they want to. People, they want to be loved, to give and receive love. People want to know truth. They want to find peace in their life, in the world. So, if that's what the Buddhists are searching for, and this fellow sitting next to me says everyone is searching for God, then that's what God must mean. Respect. Truth. 
love, giving and receiving. Peace, I should also say humor and fun as well, joy. That's what people search for. If everyone's searching for God, that must be the Buddhist idea of God. Very simple, but an argument which actually takes the concept deeper, destroys walls which divide people, especially different religions, creates harmony, and takes the pursuit of these things deeper. So instead of arguing with one another, fighting one another, having wars and blowing up one another, we can say, well, if God is those things, let's search together for respect for women, old people, um, indigenous people, uh, people from different races, people of different languages and cultures, respect, kindness, love, truth, and also fun. Let's laugh together. It's a great way of creating harmony. And then if that's what we worship and believe in, imagine what a wonderful world we can create. And as a Buddhist, a Buddhist teacher, I've got no problem with that. So that was an answer I said, and Frank Brennan, his name was, he sort of stood up and said, wow, that's the best answer I've ever got. I haven't got good answers from that, even from Christians, and you're a Buddhist, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now those are the ways that we can use now our insight, not to sort of block things and say, no, this is our truth because this is what I've been told, this is what I've learned, even this is what the suttas say. Take it deeper, so we don't stop at our knowledge. We can take it deeper into truth. One of the other sayings, the one-liners, never let your learning stand in the way of truth. Just like doctors sometimes. I don't know many doctors I've known have said, you know, they're looking at a patient, Everything they've told says that they've got this disease, but they know in their intuition, in their heart, they've got something else. And they follow that intuition, and that is right. That is what cures that patient. Sometimes what you're told, your knowledge, stands in the way of truth. Never let that happen. So this is one of the ways we can develop deeper insight. Anger. They need to be told, I need to defend myself, I'm not going to allow myself to be a doormat. Don't let yourself be exploited, ha ha ha. The meaning of my life is to be exploited. Exploit me. IOT, you've been exploiting me for the last I don't know how many days, and I'm very happy to, for you to do so. Next week I'll be exploited by people in Hong Kong. That is my life. You squeeze me for everything I've got. And I don't mind that, it's good fun. <laughs> so this is the meaning of my life. To give. As much as I can. You give me food and I give me everything I've got. Because whatever I do, I give it everything I've got. Put everything into it. So those are just a few reflections. And I did want that so just over 40 minutes. And I did, 40, actually 50 minutes, I did also want to have a lot of Q&A this evening because this is my last gig here in San Fran <laughs> and I want to have you asking any more questions about meditation, about life, about nuns, about anything before I leave. This is the last chance. So thank you for listening to that. Now, any questions?
comments or complaints? <laughs> okay, do I have... Oh, you got a question there? It was from the audience before the event. Okay, very good. So here is the first question. But before I read this question out, to get some more questions, like I said last night in your temple, I quoted a Buddhist sutta. And that sutta is the Chula Kamalwibhanga Sutra. Just so you can check me up, Venables, Venables afterwards, that I'm saying the right thing. There, no, in just brief, a man went to see the Buddha to ask about karma and rebirth, karma reincarnation. In particular, he said, but why is it that some people work really, really hard and it's still difficult to make ends meet, to pay the bills and get ahead. Other people, they don't work as hard as you do, and they become rich. They live in these big mansions, drive big cars, have got lots of money, go on expensive holidays, and they didn't work that hard. Why is it that some people are rich while other people are poor? And it can't have anything to do with how hard you work. There must be some karma from the past life. And so the Buddha uh, explained the karma you have to do in this life to be rich in your next. It made a lot of sense. And the man was so impressed, he asked a second question. And the second question, why is it that some people are born beautiful while other people are born ugly? Even if you go to spas and have facelifts, you're still ugly. Why is it some people just born, just you know, really beautiful and hot? Now you may have noticed that when I mention the word ugly, I always look at the floor. And the reason for this is when I told this story the first time in Singapore, I just, just happened to be looking at one woman when I mentioned the word ugly. And she really complained big time. Why did you mention the word ugly when you were looking at me? I complained. <laughs> So now I always look at the floor when I say ugly. And sometimes it's even more important as a male to look at the floor when you say beautiful as well. Otherwise you get in big trouble. But anyway, so that they'd said the reason why some people are born beautiful while other people are born ugly. And it made a lot of sense. So he asked his third question. This is the reason why I tell this story. And the third question was, why is it that some people are born intelligent while other people have such a hard time going through high school and university. Maybe they don't even get to university. Some of your kids, you give them extra tuition, you really sort of push them, send them to summer camps to learn math or whatever, and still they don't get the good SAT scores to go to university. Why is it that some people are just born intelligent, other people are born stupid? And the Buddha said, and please listen to this, this is important, the karmic reason why you may be reborn stupid in your next life, the karmic cause of stupidity, low intelligence, is not asking questions in this life. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> well, it always gets a question. So while you're thinking of your questions, so you don't have to work so hard in school next life, <laughs> Here's the first question. Could you kindly explain Vipassana and Samatha meditation methods, the difference and benefits, if any, between the two? I have listened to one of your YouTube Dharma discussions where you explain this very clearly, but I'd like to hear it 
one more time from you. Thank you for the great service you do for me and the rest of the world. May you have the blessings of the triple gem. Thank you, I deserve that. <laughs> I think last night I gave the talk on praise. And when you're praised, please receive it. People give you praise, don't throw it away. It's a great gift. It makes you feel good either. And you don't get a big head when you acknowledge people's praise. You just get a big heart. So we Pasana and Samatha meditation. Uh, I mentioned this in the one day retreat in Spirit Rock with another of my stories. There was this couple who lived in San Fran. Sam, surname Atta, with his partner Vi Pasana. Sam Atta and Vi Pasana decided after lunch to go on a walk up Meditation Hill. And of course, they took their dog with them, who was called Meta. So Sam Atta, Vipassana and Meta the dog went on a walk up Meditation Hill. Sam went up the hill because he loved the peace, the stillness on Meditation Hill was so amazing. Vi, his partner, she went up there for the view. In fact, she took her uh, Canon camera to take all these wonderful insight shots <laughs> from the top <laughs> of Meditation Hill. But you know what dogs are like? Meta the dog. She just went up there for the fun of it. You know, dogs are very wise. You know, because they don't think so much, they know much more. So, <laughs> they do, you know. So, Sam and Vi, they got halfway up Meditation Hill with the dog as well and even halfway up Meditation Mountain. Oh, it was so still there, so peaceful. Sam was enjoying the stillness. But he also had a pair of eyes. He could see the view as well and enjoy that. He could see such a long way, even halfway up Meditation Mountain. And Vi, she was taking all these shots, even though it was only halfway up, you can see so many things you can't see from down below. So many insights were there to be captured on film. And Meta the dog, even halfway up Meditation Hill, she was so happy she was wagging her tail. And when they got to the top, I even the dog, he could see the view and enjoy the peace too. When they got to the top, to the top of Meditation Mountain, he was so still, almost nothing moved. Sam had achieved his goal. Stillness, wow. But Sam had a pair of eyes and he also enjoyed the view. Fine, she was taking all these incredible shots. You could see everything. The wisdom was laid out before her. But she could also feel the deep peace as well. And met the dog. You know what dogs are like when they're really happy. Their tail wags as if it's falling off and they ran around in circles. But the little dog could see the view and enjoy the peace as well. Because on the top of Meditation Mountain, stillness, insight and compassion, they all coexist. You can't have one without the other. So when it gets to Samatha Vipassana, and I include Metta as well, you may think you're doing one, but the other two are right behind. 
my master Ajahn Chah, he would hold up his hand like this. That's Samatha, that's Vipassana. Now you can see Samatha, you can't see Vipassana. Now you can see Vipassana, now you can't see Samatha. You may only see one, but the other one is right behind. You can't split them up. And this is so true, because when you make your mind still, quiet, you give energy to mindfulness. Mindfulness gets very strong. But when it gets very strong, you can see things you haven't seen before. And when it gets very strong, it also gets very happy, very joyful. And in fact, as a meditation teacher, it's very hard to see how still people are, they may be asleep. It's very hard to understand their insights, because it's amazing how many ideas people confuse with insights. But the one thing which people can't fake is their happiness. So when people meditate and they start getting deep, it's their happiness which is the most clear guide to me how deep their insight is. If you can see the truth, you let go of suffering and you're not so agitated. If you're still, you see the truth and you're happy. If you've got compassion, you can get great insights and much stillness. The three always go together. And I mention compassion because in some meditation retreats, it's, it's incredible, as a Buddhist, I'm embarrassed that some retreats, where is compassion? They practice stillness or insight, but no compassion, for goodness sake. That's why in my retreats, we practice Nobel silence. Do you know what Nobel silence is? No bells. You get out whatever you want. When people are motivated enough in the West, you know, they want to get up when they've had their sleep, but you get a bell coming up, and then, my goodness, you know, you, it wakes you up, you're in a bad mood, and a bad mood all day. Other times, you're just about to get enlightened, and some idiot rings a bell. Oh. <laughs> What would have happened if there was a bell under the Bodhi tree when the Buddha was getting enlightened? Bong! I am not finished yet, but you've got to go to bed. So in my retreats, out of kindness, no bell, silence. And you know that it's incredible, when you practice no bell, silence. There are some people, every retreat I teach, get such deep meditation that they qualified to win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> but it does work when you don't control people. And I must say this story, because it's funny, but it's also true. When I was in Hong Kong, I'm going there again next week, you know, you meet many monks. It's, Hong Kong is like a crossroad, many monks from many lands come there, you know, East Asia, and not that far from Southeast Asia. And I was staying in one monastery, there was uh, Theravada monks, Tibetan monks, Chinese monks, me. And the other breakfast, now monks, we, we tell gossip, you know, what's happening in China with Buddhism, what's happening over in Australia. I don't know, I haven't told you this, but I'm having great success in Australia. Amazing how, how far Buddhism is going in Australia. And to show you how far it's going, in my monastery, we now have many Buddhist kangaroos. 
We're Buddhist kangaroos now. You know how I know they're Buddhists and not Christian? Because the Christian kangaroos, there's still a few left, the Christian kangaroos hold their paws like this. And the Buddhist kangaroos do this. <laughs> the Asian ones always laugh at that one, they think it's really funny. <laughs> Converted the kangaroos. <laughs> but anyway, in this monastery in Hong Kong, this Chinese monk from mainland China, he told me what happened during a Zen retreat in mainland China. Now in those Zen retreats, you may have gone to them, hope you haven't, or you may have seen them on TV. There's a monk goes around the back of you with a big stick. And if you start nodding, you get whacked. <laughs> really? It's scary. But this was happening in China. There's a meditation retreat and the master was going around the back and there's a, a woman, middle-aged woman, was nodding. She got whacked on the back. Immediately, she reached into her pocket, took out her smartphone and called the cops. <laughs> and the cops came and arrested the monk. You can't do that these days. It's against the law. And they took the monk to jail and charged him. <laughs> you be very careful what you do on retreats these days. <laughs> the same would happen in San Francisco. That's assault. And the <laughs> but that's why I don't like... Be careful. Any Zen monks here, please warn them. We don't want them to go to jail. But I ask myself, what on earth is happening that you do have those things in the world? Monks hitting people. That's no way to teach Buddhism. It's supposed to be compassion and kindness. If that was me and I saw someone nodding, I'd go and get a blanket and a pillow for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's kindness. They'll get away from that tiredness after a while. They're nodding because they're tired, for goodness sake. This compassion, why can't we remember compassion in Buddhism? So, that's the heart. Compassion, the dog, is as important as Samatha and Vipassana. And if you haven't got that compassion and kindness, you're getting into big trouble. So, is that okay with Samatha and Vipassana? For now, anyway? What is a proper way to practice loving kindness? Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Oh, that's a good one. Because a lot of people don't understand how to practice loving-kindness. How many of you, you may chant the loving-kindness, may all people be happy and well? That's not loving-kindness, that's control. <laughs> that's like when, when somebody, this is apparently one of Groucho Marx's jokes. You know, he was coming out of his hotel, and opened the, the elevator opened up, and somebody said to him, have a good day, sir. And he replied, no, I've got other plans. <laughs> I'm not going to have a good day just because the elevator operator tells me. I refuse on principle. So if you say, may you be happy and well, I say, no, I'm, not gonna, I'm a rebel. I'm going to deliberately be unhappy because you wanted me to be otherwise. I'm exercising my constitutionally given right for the pursuit of misery. Doesn't that say that in your constitution? And actually, all it says in your constitution is the right to pursue happiness. That's one-sided. You should have the right to be miserable as well. This is the land of the free. 
And it's true, you know, that a lot of times if you're not happy, you feel like a failure. And that causes even more psychological damage to you. That is one of the reasons why that book, which was on sale outside, which is all sold out, was called Don't Worry, Be Grumpy. (laughs) What's wrong with being grumpy? It's part of life. So anyway, don't worry, be grumpy. This woman got fed up with trying to be happy. At a meditation retreat, everyone else was smiling and happy. And just get up with a smile. And when you're meditating, be smiling. And after a while, that really pissed her off big time. I don't want to smile anymore. I'm fed up. <laughs> All these people in California being happy. Did you have, you had that sign up here uh, some years ago? Uh, don't worry, be happy. Remember that one? That's terrible. Forcing miserable people to be something they're not. So when she complained to me, I don't want to be happy. I feel grumpy. And all you telling me to be happy is making it worse. So what I did, I just got went into my office and I wrote out a grumpy license. Because you know what it's like these days? You know, you need a license to have a dog, a license to have a cat, a license to have a car, a license to have a motorbike, a license to have a wife, a life. Do you need a license to have kids yet? Wait for it, it's coming. So we need a license for anything these days. A license to open up a temple, a license to build a hut. So, I gave her a grumpy license. And the grumpy license on letter-headed paper said, this license, you know, in really nice font, could you get all this font which makes things look official? <laughs> this license grants to the holder, and I put her name down, Veronica, permission to be grumpy at any time of the day or night, for any reason or no reason in particular, just because she wants to be grumpy, signed her teacher, uh, and I put my my title, which is His Roundness, Ajahn Brown. That's my title, His Roundness, Ajahn Brown. (laughs) And I dated it, and the expiry date, end of her life. And I gave that to her, so now she doesn't have to feel so guilty not being happy. So when it comes to loving kindness, saying may you all be happy and well is wrong. It's saying the door of my heart is open to you no matter who you are, no matter how you feel. If you want to be angry, I will still love you for being angry. If you're sick and miserable, you can be sick and miserable and I'll still be your friend. It's not putting any force or pressure on people at all. If you want to die, you can. The door of my heart is open to you. Maybe wife, husband, father. Even though you're dying on me. You don't need to get better for me. I let you be. Let you go. That is the highest act of love. To let someone go. You trying to keep them is pretty selfish sometimes. Yeah, you'll miss them when they're gone. At the end of their life, their body's wearing out. They're often trying to keep going just for you because they don't want to upset you. And so often I've found if you give someone who's dying permission to die, the one who loves them the most, give your lover permission to go. And that frees them so they can die beautifully instead of struggling so they don't hurt other people they love. That's meta.
matter is not may you be happy and well. May you be whoever you are. And I will still love you and care for you. Loving kindness. When you see that, you find out we always want other people to be well and happy, and that puts pressure on them. That's not real loving kindness. <clears throat> Next question, I better do this quickly. How do you view addiction and recovery from a Buddhist perspective? Addiction, it's a difficult thing because once you're addicted, every day you have to say a no a thousand times. You only have to say one, yes once and you're back again. So it's a very difficult thing to be addicted. So obviously using force, willpower, is really not enough. You have to use some willpower, but it's very hard to win by willpower alone. So the other thing is you use wisdom power. And the wisdom power is the things of your addiction that have to be so distant from you. you now the alcohol can't be in your house, the cigarettes have to be way in another room, or even further away. So that it takes a lot of effort for you actually to say yes. Obviously, you know, if the liquor is right next to your bed, you're going to drink it. The cigarette is just in the, in the drawer. Before you even know, you know you're doing anything, it's in your mouth, lips. So you have to have those strategies to put these things a long way away from you. If you're addicted to, say, pornography on the internet, you have to put the, the computer a long way away from you. And you can put the, sometimes putting the filters on don't work. Now I was talking to one of my young monks, you know, these young guys, and they said, I can get around any barrier. Because smart people, you know, that's your kids, they go to school and they talk about how you could overcome all these protecting barriers. It's not that hard because these kids are smart. They can hack into the CIA computer. You think you can stop them? So you have to put these things away from people to stop those addictions. And the last thing is all addictive behaviour you find is self-destructive. And a lot of times it is because this terrible thing we have in the West, lack of self-esteem, lack of self-worth, basically hating yourself. Now that may be a bit hard to say, but that's so true. And all it needs is that powerful story opening the door of your heart again. And this is, uh, I've told this so many times, but my goodness, it works. There comes a time in everybody's life when a quiet time, when you feel the courage and the strength to look at yourself in the mirror or just feel yourself and say, me, this person I've lived with for such a long time, this person has been hurt terribly, is very afraid and vulnerable and fragile. Me, who's done some very bad things to others as well. The door of my heart is fully open to me, whoever I am, whatever I've done. You open the door up to yourself. That's a very powerful moment for people when they do it properly. And the simile which I give is, I gave this a day or two ago, I'll give it again here. If you imagine a heart in your chest somewhere, if you haven't done biology, just one of those hearts you saw on the Valentine's Day cards two weeks ago. 
And you imagine just two doors opening up and a staircase coming down. In the heart is all that part of you which you like, respect, all the happy, wonderful times you've had and all the things of yourself you're proud of. The things you respect which you've let inside your heart a long time ago. And the reason you put the ladder down is because outside, on the bottom, are all those parts of you which you're embarrassed about, which you'd rather never existed. The times when you were really abused badly. The times when you really needed some help and you were beaten, even raped by people you trusted. And that part of you is outside. The times you've done really bad things to others, cruel things which have hurt them terribly, that part of you is also outside. You don't, you're rejecting it. You're not loving it. And in this moment, you see all those little beings, part of who you are, outside, on the bottom, and you invite them in. Come up. Come up and come in. I'm not going to reject you anymore. I'm not going to keep you out of my heart. I'm going to invite you all in. And in this little imaginary exercise, you actually imagine all these little parts of you, the time when you were a young boy, a young girl, coming up the ladder or the steps. And the nice part of you, the stuff you respect, embracing, coming home, forgiving, being at one. And every part of you comes inside. So you can really say, me, all of me, since the earliest time I can remember, the door of my heart is open. No matter who you are, no matter what you did, no matter what you experienced, you're part of me. I'm not trying to change you. I'm trying to care for you. Come in. It's a really, really powerful moment when you do that. Catharsis happens. Those things which were problems, the reason why you never liked yourself. Go. You're at peace with yourself. You may not be the best person in the world, but you're a beautiful one. And the simile is what allows you to love yourself and allow all of this stuff in. Please again, say it many times on this trip, the simile of the tree. To understand the simile of the tree, I ask people to go into a wood or a forest and find a tree which is dead straight, which is not leaning to the left or the right, which is not crooked, with all the branches in the right place, and only green leaves, no yellow leaves, no brown leaves, and no leaves which have been eaten by the bugs, with perfectly green leaves, and a bark which is smooth and not damaged. If you find a tree like that, it's very rare, it's usually in some government plantation or in somebody's garden, in the natural forests and woods. All the trees are bent and crooked. All the trees have branches that have been ripped off them. And in the holes left by those ripped off branches, that's where birds and other animals make their nests. 
and as many yellow and brown leaves. And the bark is all burnt, twisted with these cankers on them. Those are natural trees. And if you go on a walk in the forest, I'm sure you'll agree with me, the most beautiful trees are the ones which have been damaged by the storms, bent all over, all twisted and crooked, and all the bark, the trunk, all rough and scarred. They are the beautiful trees in the forest. So, if you are one of those trees, damaged goods, victims of horrendous pasts, welcome. You belong as one of the most beautiful trees in the forest of humanity. Welcome. A powerful simile which actually brings people in and what was once lack of self-esteem. One thinks there's something wrong with me. It's looked upon as what makes you beautiful, lovable, one of the best trees in the forest. That is how we overcome the cause of addiction. In Buddhism we believe in karma, a force of nature like psychic powers that has not been supported by science. What do you see our respective roles for science and insight in understanding the nature of the universe? Oh, how long have we got? I was a scientist and I love this stuff with science and the nature of the universe. I don't know if any of you have seen um, the TEDx talk done by Rupert Sheldrake, professor of neurobiology or something at uh, Cambridge University. He gave a talk distinguishing scientific method and scientific dogmatism. Scientific method means everything can be challenged. Scientific dogmatism say, no, we've settled some things and you can't ask questions about it from here on in like dogmatism in religion. And having said that, simple things, I think you all probably remember your high school science, Newton's law of gravity, the attraction between two massive objects is equal to the product of their masses divided by the square of their distances apart multiplied by the universal gravitational constant big G. And Professor Sheldrake said, well, is it really a constant? Prove it. And there are laboratories in every major uh, country where the scientists spend all their time every year measuring these constants. It's probably you know, one of the lowest jobs for scientists who can't get a job anywhere else, but it's well paid, routine work. And of course, they keep the records, and this guy went back 50 years, comparing the measurements of Big G in laboratories all over the world, and founding, yes, Big G does change significantly. When it changes 2% in New York, it changes 2% in Calcutta. 
It is not a constant which undermines basic parts of physics because no one knows why it changes. But most scientists refuse to admit that because science is dogmatic. Now when I say that, where we go to his main thrust which is why science denies the existence of a human mind separate from the brain. There's heaps of evidence. In 1981, I read a report in Nature magazine of Professor John Lorber of Sheffield University in UK. His field of research was how the distorted shape of human skulls affects people's intelligence and social skills. You know, not everybody's skulls are the same shape and some are so badly distorted he wanted to find out what effect this had. So in his college he would notice, no one else would know, when your skull was slightly deformed and not one of the normal skull shapes. He found one young student, he was uh, doing postgrad work in math, very intelligent guy, he got a first class in his bachelor's, and he had a slightly deformed skull shape. So this professor gave him an MRI scan of his brain and found out that he had no brain. <laughs> and he became called the boy with no brain. He had 1% cerebral cortex, nothing else. Only 1%, everything else was cerebral fluid. And even today, no neuroscientist can explain how 1% can actually take over all of the functions of a brain just to be able to breathe and, and have a heartbeat, let alone being a person with memory, with intelligence, a, a postgrad um, researcher in maths, with a girlfriend, to be able to speak languages, well educated, was impossible. The boy with no brain. The CT scan was done several times because they thought it must be something strange. Science has called this an anomaly. It doesn't fit in with the theory, so push it aside and forget about it. Many other times this has happened. There are times when people have had NDEs, near-death experiences. On one occasion, this was great evidence for the existence of a mind outside the body. There was one person, this was in a BBC documentary, one woman, poor woman, over in I think Colorado Springs, here in the US some years ago, who had an aneurysm at the base of her brain. An aneurysm is like a blood vessel which is so weak it balloons out, if it bursts you're dead. Because it was the base of the brain, no doctor in the US at the time was prepared to operate because the chances are she would die and they'd get sued. But there was one experimental doctor over in Colorado Springs who was pioneering what's now called cryogenic freezing where you freeze the human body to such a low state, things stop and that allows you to do, perform operations which were previously impossible. So he proposed to freeze her body to such a low temperature that everything stops, then open up her head, literally lift up her brain, 
fix up the aneurysm, put the brain back in, uh, cover it up again, thaw her out and hope for the best. It had never been done before. So she had to sign all sorts of waivers, you know, that uh, no matter what happened she wouldn't sue the doctor, she had nothing to lose. And the anaesthetist happened to be one of the researchers on near-death experiences. And so he said this is a great opportunity to do some research, so he would record everything which happened and was said in the operating theatre during the procedures. So if she did recover and she did say she was floating above or she was say this, this was said, this was done, they could at least say it was a true record of what happened. And secondly, because her brain and the rest of her body was frozen to such a low temperature, he had some other gizmos on her brain where he said if one neuron, even one neuron fired, he would be able to record it. And so during this operation, for a long time, many hours, no neural activity was happening at all. Such a low temperature, virtually the brain stopped. And she had full record of what happened. Full near-death experience, seeing all the conversations, hearing everything, seeing what was done. And that was very convincing evidence. Because this was things which were said and done at a time when her brain was actually not working at all. Do scientists accept that? No, anomaly. She must have just been thinking of this, believing it. I really get pissed off at scientists because I was trained as a scientist. Whatever the evidence says, you have to accept it or explain it in a way which is far more convincing than a near-death experience. That your mind was actually existing when your brain was not functioning. There is so much evidence. It's people who remember their past lives, literally, and they say who they were, and they have no way of gaining that information, and they go back and they find, yes, those people existed. And the evidence is so strong. You get a scientist to believe in reincarnation, rebirth, no way. Why? Because they don't want to. And people like Rupert Sheldrake and his others joining him are trying to force science to be scientific. Not to be so dogmatic to believe just because they have to change their whole world view to understand that the mind is separate from the brain. Once you can do things like that, and things like rebirth, reincarnation, come as truths which you can't deny all those stupid arguments saying there's more people alive today than ever been dead, so there can't be reincarnation. Such a stupid argument. There are true, more people alive today than have ever lived. But there's so many animals, especially the higher animals, who are dead. And that's where some of the people have come from. Many people alive today were animals in their previous life. The animal kingdom, if you like, for want of a better word, has diminished enormously as the human population has increased. And when you understand that many of our children were animals before, it explains much of juvenile <laughs> behaviour, <laughs> especially in Oakland and LA. <laughs>
So anyway, that's a big thing with me with science. And even when it comes to basic physics, quantum physics, as I say, you, know, you don't need to know quantum physics, but it is clear, it is fundamental Schrodinger equation. You need a mind to create reality. Without, reality, without a mind, without observation, without a knowing, reality doesn't exist. That's a fundamental fact of Schrodinger's equation in physics. A fundamental part of quantum physics, and quantum physics is what makes our mobile phone work, or makes computers work. Quantum physics actually works. It's how basically the old transistors work. It's a quantum effect. Even though it works, it's true. But, when we see the theories, we refuse to understand the implications. So please, that's an important thing, because once we get back to a mind, we get back to a society which recognise the importance of emotions, of love, of respect, things which can't be measured on some machine. And these become more important. We have emotional intelligence rather than intellectual intelligence. We care for each other. The material world becomes less important than the emotional world. Things like uh, kindness, love, generosity, good karma becomes more important. Anyway, please excuse me for saying that, but that was one of my missions. It's gone past nine o'clock. Can I carry on? Or is it time to go? I'll try to be quick. As you said, people who are wealthy or not, beauty or not, all depend on what he or she did in the previous life. And how can the present life get improved and better? By changing your, your perception of what beauty is. Because beauty isn't being a supermodel on the front of the magazines. Being a, a, a beautiful guy doesn't mean you, know, you look like Brad Pitt or you have big app, apps or something. You don't have to go to the gym every day to be photogenic. I have had more photographs taken of me in the last 10 days than Brad Pitt has. <laughs> that is how to be beautiful. <laughs> and as for wealth, what is wealth anyway by want, but wanting for nothing? I am so wealthy, even today somebody asked me, Ajahn Brahm, what do you want? Lal asked me, he said, what do you want? What can I get you to go back to Australia? I said, nothing, I don't want anything. That's called being rich. I'm so rich, I want for nothing. So we change our attitude, our idea of what beauty is and what wealth is. Wealth is your family. Because they will look after you much more than your insurance will when you're in trouble. And your, your beauty is your happiness. The smile attracts people more than anything else. All we do for present life is only for karma in the next life. No, we make karma right now. So we make karma in this life, so we win in this life, we win in the next life. How do you know if we have free will or not? Uh, did you choose to write that question? <laughs> <laughs> what questions do you have that you didn't have an answer for and want to answer the God or something. What questions do you have that you don't have an answer for? Questions which aren't important are the ones we don't have answers for. 
Ajahn Brahm, some say meditation can be very dangerous if you practice incorrectly. For example, getting into darker side of the practice if you choose wrong tradition. Can you expand on this topic? What do you recommend? Thank you for coming to California. As long as your meditation has a lot of compassion in it, then it's not a dangerous. Please don't forget kindness, gentleness <coughs> to yourself and others. So for example, if you're meditating and your legs hurt, move them! <laughs> One of my friends, Ajahn, Ajahn Munindo, when he was young, he decided to sit through pain. To sit for 10 or 12 hours, doesn't matter how much it hurts, he is not going to move. So afterwards, we had to send him to hospital for double knee reconstruction. <laughs> that is stupidity. That is not wisdom. That is not kindness. That's where you get into trouble. You know, being a control freak rather than being a kindness freak. So your meditation, wisdom power, not willpower. Kindness. That is a way to become enlightened. Please don't forget kindness in life. Even Buddhists can be so cruel to one another. How do you help people who is at near death in two situations? A person who knows meditation, a person who doesn't know meditation. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. If they're close to death and they know meditation, it uh, depends what type of meditation they know. Many people meditate, they think they know meditation. No, they don't. If they know meditation, they won't be scared at all because you're about to die. And if you're a good person, you made lots of good karma, you've given lots of donations to Dhamma Darini, <laughs> then you're going to go to heaven when you die. At least you're going to get a good rebirth, you're going to have a wonderful time. So a good meditator is never afraid of death. Their attitude to death can be explained by this simile. Suppose Dhamma Darini had a competition. You know, they maybe sold raffle tickets. You know, to raise funds for their monastery. And the prize was a first-class ticket for two on United Airways to Hawaii, where you and a friend would stay in a six-star hotel by the beach. You have free entry to the spa every day. You'll be able to eat in fancy restaurants, whatever you want, all paid for by Dhamma Darini. And you'll each have $1,000 to spend each day during the 14-day holiday. <laughs> now, and that was a prize, and you found out that today you won that prize. And two weeks later, you'll be able to go on this wonderful holiday to Hawaii. Would you be happy? Would you be excited? Most people would. <laughs> if it wasn't Hawaii, you can choose another destination. So most people will be very happy, and in fact, uh, after one week, they'll be thinking, I can't wait to get to Hawaii. Uh, three days, they'd all be packed. The night before, they wouldn't be able to go to sleep. They'll be so excited, tomorrow I'm going to Hawaii. First class, six-star hotel, thousand dollars, by the beach, oh, so wonderful. <laughs> and in fact, if it was at all possible, you'd ask, can I go earlier? Now, which is better, going to heaven or going to Hawaii? 
Most people say, who are in the know, going to heaven is much better than going to Hawaii. So why is it when the doctor says, you've won this prize, you are going to heaven. <laughs> Your cancer is terminal and says you've got two weeks to live. Why can't you say, can't you make it six days? <laughs> I want to go early, I can't wait. Wouldn't it be after, you know, you said 12 days to live, after the 11th day you'd be so excited? Tomorrow I'm going to die. I'm going to die tomorrow, I'm going to heaven tomorrow, ooh, yeah, wow! <laughs> That's the attitude, if you're a meditator, to death. You can't wait. <laughs> As your president used to say, bring it on, doctor, bring it on. <laughs> and you know, if any of you, oh, too late now, if you are at the end of the life, it, it, you know, do you, are, is it allowed to have euthanasia in California? not allowed. Now sometimes I think euthanasia is a good thing. But anyway, if you want to get around the law, and it, I shouldn't say I'm getting in trouble for this, anyway, here we go. I'm going on a plane tomorrow so I can escape in time before <laughs> authority going. Is it very easy to actually commit euthanasia these days? You know, you don't need to sort of get any drugs from Mexico. All you need to do is on your Facebook page, draw a cartoon of Mohammed, put your address underneath, <laughs> And in 24 hours, you know, you'd be euthanized. <laughs> Easy. No problem. And, and they, the government can't stop you for doing that. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that again. So that's, that is actually, for if you're a meditator, you should actually be, if you're a non-meditator, you know, then just, number of great things, as I said already, give, give your loved one permission to die. Because I've seen this, the first time I saw this, a wonderful, one of the wonderful moments of my life. There was these two, this young couple, it was an Australian nurse called Jenny, and her husband was from the US called Steve. And they, now young, they were in their late 20s, early 30s, and they had a white water rafting company. So they would take people you know, on these incredible journeys to some remote, beautiful locations in the world, doing white water rafting. That was their passion. It was an incredible job that they could get paid for doing what they'd like more than anything else in the whole world. But unfortunately Steve got a cancer and he was fading away. There was nothing you could do about it. And I was counselling them, going to see them day after day. And it came to a time when he was so wasted, you know, he was about to die but he wasn't dying. And when I went to see them, he was in his bed looking just, you no, know, a white water rafter, he was incredibly fit. But now he was just so thin, as you see people with cancer. And he wasn't dying. And I got my insight, I told Jenny, Jenny, have you given Steve permission to die yet? And she looked at me, she didn't say anything, she understood. And she jumped on the bed. And she held this person she loved so much, tenderly, looked into his eyes, said, Steve, it's okay, you can die. Don't worry about me. You can die. I love you. And it was one of these beautiful moments in my life. I just stood back and watched all of this. You see these two lovers give each other permission to go. I went, the following morning she gave me a call. He died that night. That's all he needed, 
permission from the person he loved so much to leave her. And then he went. He'd been hanging on for days. Why? Imagine what it's like dying. And the last thing you want to do is hurt a person you love so much. That's deep, that's even subconscious. You won't die until you give, be given permission. So if you have a loved one who's dying, please, and it gets to the point that you know, you know they're holding on, there's no hope for them, they're going to die, give them permission. And sometimes that's all it needs. And then they die within hours, peacefully, instead of carrying on for day after day after day. That's advice when people are close to death. Okay, that is the last question because I went through the last one pretty quickly. I apologise if I just went through your question too fast, sorry about that. But thank you all for listening, thank you all my stalkers for coming to so many talks. Uh, this is the last one, so remember how we do the sadhus. Get ready, everyone join in. One, two, three. Sadhu! 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 That's the Buddhist way. Ajahn Brahm stop. <laughs> at the end of a talk. Give it energy, everything you've got. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Don't forget the donation box, everything you've got. <laughs> now please be generous and kind because that's what I come for. And these nuns will be taking over, giving this wonderful talk. So this is what happens when you become a Buddhist monk, Buddhist nun. So all the best. Any announcements before we go? Boss? No announcement? No. no. So, good on you mates. See you in Australia. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.